Welcome to Stone's Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode, I'm talking to Dr. Ashton Embry, geologist with decades of expertise on sequence stratigraphy. Ashton started with the Geological Survey of Canada in 1977 and has been working on applications of sequence stratigraphy to sedimentary successions since 1974. We'll be discussing sequence stratigraphy with reference to Ashton Embry's research papers titled Episodic Global Tectonics, Sequence Stratigraphy Meets Plate Tectonics, and Two Approaches to Sequence Stratigraphy with co-author Eric Johannesson. Some highlights include discussing tectonic and sea level stratigraphic models. We're rocking out today with Ashton Embry. Welcome to Stone's Notes. Hi, Ashton. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Hi, Maureen. It's great to be here. And thank you for the invitation. It's very exciting. This is the first episode on sequence stratigraphy, and we're talking to a true expert. We were just talking a minute ago about when you first started looking at sequence stratigraphy. Well, I very first started when I was doing my PhD, and I realized, hey, I can divide my rocks into sequences that had been defined by by Sloss and Crumbine back in the 1949, based on major onconformities. And I saw these onconformities in my rock. I said, well, that's a good way to subdivide my, my succession. And then I gave a talk on my on this sequences that I had found down at the Geological Society of America in 1974 in Miami. And in the very, in the very same session, Peter Vail gave, gave the, gave, uh, he gave his very first talk on sequence stratigraphy. And that was a nice way to start. Yeah, 1974, you're one of the original sequence stratigraphers. Well, um, I was one of the, you know, going into a new generation of sequence stratigraphy. By that time, we had sedimentology was established. So we could do so much more once you had the sedimentological tools that at the first, when they were doing sequence stratigraphy in the 50s and even early 60s, they didn't have sedimentology. And sedimentology is one of the keys to doing very good sequence stratigraphy. Exactly. And one of the quotes you had in the chapter that you wrote was um, Wikipedia defines stratigraphy as a branch of geology which studies rock layers or strata and layering or stratification. Um, so we've just gone over your history with sequence stratigraphy a little bit. Um, can you give us a bit of an idea of what the entire history of sequence stratigraphy is? You got the sedimentology. It's basically with stratigraphy, you're trying to subdivide all the column into various there's units and, you know, strata. And one thing they recognized for, you know, like a hundred, you know, where like Hutton recognized in 1789, there are things called onconformities. And they're a very important boundary in, in, in the stratigraphy. So you want to have your onconformities on the boundaries of the of the of various stratigraphic units you don't want them inside because major changes happen across all the formulas. so you don't want them inside a, strat a stratigraphic unit because then it becomes a, a totally two 
different things which is separated by nonconformity. So you want the nonconformity on the boundaries. And that's what Larry Sloss said, okay, we will call things the stratigraphic stratigraphic units that have nonconformities on the boundaries. We will call them a sequence. And that's how sequence degree was born, that we're going to subdivide the stratigraphic column into units that are bound by unconformities. And that's what sequence stratigraphy basically is. So, yeah. and, then, and then in the mid 70s, 77, the Exxon published that major contribution. And the biggest contribution was they showed you could extend the boundary of, a, of the sequence beyond the unconformity and trace it along what they called a correlative conformity. And that allowed you to trace your sequence boundary over the entire basin and not just on the basin margins. So that really opened up. Now we had a very useful stratigraphic unit that also had the unconformities on the boundaries, but it also was able to trace the whole unit over the whole basin. So we have a very practical, useful stratigraphic unit. So once we did that, then that's when I really got into it. I said, okay, now I can subdivide all my, my rocks into sequences. And I wanted to make sure I had a proper methodology. And that's what I've been publishing for the last 40 years is on the methodology of how you draw, how you recognize the boundaries of a sequence, how you correlate them and how they are of value for understanding the, the, ge geological, the geological history of the basin. So yeah. yeah, and that's that's huge, being able to correlate across the entire basin. Yeah, that's the key. You started to touch on there about the different approaches and methodologies, such as the Exxon one. Um, and in the chapter, there were two main ones that you discussed, the inductive approach, which was uh, defined based on observable physical features, and the deductive approach, which was using a conceptual model. So how would you describe those two different approaches to sequence well, stratigraphy? In science, as you know, there's two different approaches. There's the inductive <laughs> approach, where you just observe uh, uh, observe phenomenon and you build a whole theory based on your observation. And that's called the inductive approach. And then there's the deductive approach where you come up with a concept and then you deduce what surfaces or what, what phenomenon would come from that concept. So you, there are just two ways of getting at things. And so, and uh, I, I think it's important to understand that there's in sequence to take it, there's these two approaches and they're quite different. And as long as you understand there are, there, uh, there are two different methodologies and what the differences are and what the consequences are if you use one or the other, then that's great. But a lot of people, I don't think, quite understand there are these two very different approaches and the consequences of doing one and not doing it properly can be, you know, can be a problem. 
Yeah, it seems like in the inductive one, you kind of use the data to guide the model. And exactly. then the deductive, you use the model and make sure the data fits. And then you try and say, what should I be seeing? What should be out there? And then you try and recognize what you think sh should be out there. Yeah, that, exactly. That's a very different approach. That's a very, very different approach. And it's really important that people understand that there are these two approaches. And within those two approaches, um, there's different sequence stratigraphic surfaces. So yes. you had a really nice figure in the chapter of seven inductive surfaces. And then you talked about the bases that you see above them and below them. So a little bit of tying the sedimentology in. Yes. That's why I said that's why that's when sequence stratigraphy really took off was when we had the sedimentological tools. And as I say, they were developed all in the 1960s when I was going to school, actually. So I was very fortunate. By the time I graduated with my bachelor in 1968, we had a lot of these, these sedimentological tools that had not been there five years previously. So I was very fortunate on that, on that count. And so with the inductive approach, you you define your various your various surfaces based on sedimentological criteria and on criteria that show there are breaks. So those are two different ways of defining the inductive surfaces that you can demonstrate that there is a time break in your succession, maybe with paleontology or with other means of maybe angularity at, at the surface. So you can actually demonstrate there are missing strata there. And with the conformable surfaces, you mainly define them with sedimentology. So as I said, that you're defining the unconformable portion of it, of a, of a boundary and the conformable portion. So with the unconformable portion, you use things that demonstrate time loss. And with the conformable portion, you have to use sedimentological criteria. And as I say, each surface, that's what I said, had the different kinds of sedimentological uh, criteria above and below it. And that provided the, the objective scientific manner of defining them. And, and recognizing them. Yeah, one of the surfaces that was in common between the inductive and the deductive was the maximum flooding surface. Um, so, you know, if you're looking at it from the inductive one, you'd look at the coarsening upwards with the good coarse sand below it and then the fine grained shales above it. How would you look at the maximum flooding surface from um, a deductive approach? Well, in the deductive model, they, they have a model showing that, say, you know, relative sea level is going up and down, up and down. And if you have a model like that with, with the sediment supply, you deduce that there will be a time when you'll go from a shallowing upwards succession to a to a, a deepening upward succession. So in theory, it should be there. And indeed, it is there. And we have the sedimentological criteria to say, okay, this is, this is showing, oh, now we're starting to deepen upward. So at that boundary, you say, this is the maximum flooding surface. So that's when the two 
the two methodologies work together and that's fine. And that's not a problem that you have, you have this theoretical surface and you also have a lot of objective criteria for being able to recognize it. So that, that's great. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned as well is um, some of the surfaces are easier to recognize, like the, um, you know, maximum flooding, maximum regressive, but yeah. other ones such as the correlative conformity are a bit more difficult. Um, what's kind of some of the tricks to identifying it? Well, there's the two surfaces in the inductive approach. That's one's called the basal surface of forest regression. And the other has various names, but it's the you know, sometimes it's the start of base level rise surface. Sometimes it's called the correlative conformity surface. Those are theoretical surfaces, but the problem with them is there's no objective sedimentological criteria for mm -hmm. recognizing them. Exactly. So it becomes a bit of a problem if you want to to have those surfaces in your in your being able to uh, draw them on your cross sections. Well, if you have no objective criteria to recognize them, then you have to sort of fake it and just put it in where you think it might be. And it's just becomes extremely subjective. And when you get into subjectivity, you're starting to not be very scientific. Science depends on objectivity. So five people all come to the same spot. Okay, this is the maximum flooding service. I think five people would find the same spot. Yeah. If you said, okay, find the correlative conformity, they may put it at five different places because there's no objective criteria. And each one, well, fakes it in a different manner. Potentially, you know, maybe two out of the five will be at the same place by chance. Who knows? So it's that's the real problem with those two surfaces that were defined in the, the deductive approach. Yeah. And these surfaces are really key as well for um, defining where the sequences are. And you can have the transgressive regressive sequences or the four main systems tracks of the high stand, falling stage, low stand and transgressive systems tracks. Yes. How do you think like lumping the um, regressive systems together with the high stand um, and other ones in the inductive change, lumping versus splitting? Yes. That, that in both the inductive and deductive, we all have a transgressive system tract, and we both agree on that. Yeah. Where that boundary is. At the top of it, it's the maximum. The maximum flooding surface is the is the uh, is, is that surface. But when we have a bunch of strata that are regressive, that are shallowing up, we just in the deductive approach, we just call that the regressive systems tract. Now, in the inductive approach, they say, well, you should be able to recognize the basal surface of forced regression and the correlative conformity. And if you can recognize those inside this regressive succession, then you can divide it into three different systems tract. The the uh, low stand system track, the high stand system track, and the forced regressive system track. But to be able to do that depends on being able to 
recognize those two surfaces we've been talking about, the basal surface of forest regression and the correlative conformity. And as I say, there aren't any good objective scientific criteria for being able to recognize those. So it becomes when you try and put your three systems tracks in, in the re, inside the regressors track, you're, it's a real problem because it's, you just can't do it in an objective, repeatable manner. So it sounds like, you know, if you have really good surfaces defined, then the systems tracks are better defined. Do you think something like adding in seismic versus just wireline logs would help find those surfaces and give higher confidence? Seismic can potentially was really high res, 3D seismic, really a good high res. You know, most seismic reflectors have maybe 10, 10, 10, 10 meters of sediment inside that one reflector. So that's the resol resolution is 10, 10 meters. Well, mm -hmm. that can involve a lot of stratigraphy inside that 10 meters that you can't resolve. And so, but if you, I agree, if you have some really high quality 3D seismic, you might be able to have a, reasonably good guideline where the correlative conformity if it's there <clears throat> might be and where the basal surface of forced regression might possibly be. So you have a, a better hope if you have really good seismic data, but the chances of having that over a wide area is almost none. It's just zero. Like you have it over maybe a field uh -huh. So maybe you do it inside a field. But if you want to do a regional study, forget about it. Yeah, so so much really depends on the scale. Yes, yes. Uh, what, do, what do you think of parasequence models that focus only on the flooding surfaces? Well, the parasequence model was unfortunately not very well thought out by John Van Wagner. He just defined it on a, the boundary between a sand and overlying shale which is a facies contact, which is not a surface of sequence stratigraphy. Now, it can, it's fairly close to one that generally the maximum regressive surface lies not too far below. Mm -hmm. But it's not, what John defined as a flooding surface is not a surface of sequence stratigraphy. So if you want a parasequence to be a part of sequence stratigraphy, you have to use surfaces of sequence stratigraphy to define it. If you want it to just to be something that is just a, a, a it's basically would be in John's definition would be just a, a lithostratigraphic unit that which is defined on facies contacts, just a sandstone to a shale. So that's now the actual differences are not huge because often the, the stratigraphic, you know, interval between the, the sand and the shale contact and the underlying maximum regress surface is not that large. So you're going to come close. I just like to see if you're going to do something, why don't you do it properly? Do it scientifically as best as you can, rather than a sort of, okay, we're close. That's, 
So I mean, I'm being a bit of a stickler with that, but it's not a big deal. But I think it's worth telling people that this is this is the facts. This is what's really going on. And, you know, go with it as you prefer. So it's almost like the pair sequences have the faces and the lithostratigraphy better. So it'd be good for chasing out sand bodies. But for understanding the whole geology of the system, it doesn't give you yeah. a, the yes. whole picture. Exactly. If you want to do... Uh, sequence stratigraphic analysis, yes. Then you would want to, to have a boundary of a pair of sequence as the maximum regressive surface if you really want to do a proper analysis. And as yeah. you say, if you're just, you know, you, you definitely want to have your sand units yeah, defined too, but that is not sequence stratigraphy. That is the lithostratigraphy, which is exactly. fine. That's your basic kind of stratigraphy, which... You know, I, you know, I do, that's what you always do. And I've done that uh, totally also. It's just one more way of doing stratigraphy. Yeah, just one piece of the picture. Yes. What do you see as some of the pros and cons of the inductive versus the deductive approach? Oh, the inductive, the major pro is that it's very objective. And it's very, the methodology is very, very clear. And if you follow it, I think you're going to, that if somebody else does the same thing, you're going to end up with the same answers. And so, which is what you want. I always think that you want to have as objective a result as you possibly can. And then you'll make your interpretations, you make your decisions based on that. I think you're going to make the best you can if you're dealing with objective data, objective criteria. The inductive approach, as I say, has a lot of not a very subjective subjectivity if you want to start trying to draw in the correlative conformity or the basal service forced regression. They are have a high amount of subjectivity. And unfortunately, people want to do this, but they don't know how to do it. So they'll use a facies contact just because that's one thing they can recognize. And that's going to put you astray. That's going to make you make mistakes. That's going to give you false assumptions, bad interpretations. So you're really gambling. You're really making a potential problem if you decide to use the inductive approach because you have it's not as it's not as scientific it's much more subjective and that can lead to big mistakes now of course that if you got it correct by some way of great seismic or somehow if you got it correct the inductive approach does give you a more refined it gives you four systems tracks rather than only two well if you have a more detailed correlation like that, well, that's great. So as long as it was correct, then the inductive approach is going to give you a better, a, a more detailed uh, 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 analysis. But you're, you're gambling big time because the chances of you getting it correct are very low. What you said there too about um, different geologists interpreting it the same way is huge with um, everyone rotating through different assets. You want the next person to be able to pick it up and understand what the yes. original geologist was doing. I can't agree 
more. That that's that's the basis of all science. Is is you has to be be able to re, re, reproduce ability. So mm-hmm. that's why it's always good to have more than one study of something. So you you got to say, yeah, that guy got it correct. Yeah, this is how it is. And there's been a lot of science falsified by, yeah, somebody else trying to do that. And say, hey, that doesn't work. And then somebody else tries. No, that doesn't work. So that's that's the scientific method. We're always mm-hmm. trying to come up with new new uh, new observations, new methods, new new I concepts, but they have to be tested, constantly tested. And to, that's where the objectivity comes in. If you to get tested properly, you must have the objective criteria that can be tested. Yes. One of the methods that you did test and you looked at it in a couple of different basins was the episodic global tectonics. And it was often overlooked in the past. And then you did some research and brought it back up. Um, and it was overlooked in favor of the used to see deductive model that we just talked about. So what does the episodic global tectonics theory state? Well, I want to go back a little ways because when the Exxon published their big memoir in 1977, they said, okay, this is all due to, to the, 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 sea level going up and down, as you say, it's the, it's the used to see. And that's, and so everybody loved their model and they all bought into this, idea that all the sequences were mainly due to a eustatic cause. And to me, that was a huge red herring. That's led so many people astray. And I have to admit, when I first did I thought, oh, yeah, that's probably how it is. But then when I started to have a, a very detailed look at my boundaries, I said, hey, this has to be tectonics that are creating these boundaries. And the more I look, the more I, yikes, this is many of these, especially the larger boundaries are definitely our tectonic origin and not of a eustatic origin. And I first gave a talk on that in 1986 at the Geological Society of America meeting. I know the Exxon people were there and they were very upset. They were very, very upset that I dared to say this. They were wrong. And but then so we've been sort of having little battles and ever since that that time in in October of 1986. But uh, I and so once you say these boundaries are tectonic, so I had the boundaries in my the basin I was studying up north, the Sferda Basin. I said, okay, these boundaries are definitely caused by tectonics. And then to my, you know, when I looked around in basins around the world, these same aged boundaries were there. I thought, well, that's strange. I mean, how does that work? I mean, and then I then many of those boundaries, they had criteria that were described, but they were also tectonics. So I was thinking, well, we're, we're, we're having tectonic boundaries being generated at the same time in many basins around the world. 
So how can I explain this? And the only thing I could come up with was there's got to be some kind of a tectonic mechanism going on that affects you know, uh, many different parts of the, of the globe at the same time. And of course, the other thing I saw is that you would get these boundaries and then there'd be a long, uh, long column of rock that looks the same. And then boom, you get another boundary. And then you get another long column. So these are very episodic. They, they punctuate the stratigraphy. There's this long amounts of sameness and they're bound by these tectonic they, these tectonic boundaries that were created by these tectonic episodes. So that's when I came up with the idea of this of of of, 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 of a global tectonic episodes that every so often the whole, much of the globe is affected by relatively short short-lived times of terror. Tectonism things are bouncing up and down, volcanism. And then you go into a long time of stability. And then all of a sudden, boom, you get hit by another one of these events. So, and I've kept, I kept looking at basins around the world and that's exactly what I was seeing in them. So it's a whole different concept. And it's, it's you know, people tend not to want to change their minds if they don't have to. And, I'm, and this is, people just haven't, been able to come to terms with this, but the facts to me are there that these boundaries are obviously of tectonic origin and they are occurring in basins around the world. So how else can you explain this except in that manner? And we actually have a way of explaining in the sense that we know in our plate tectonic mosaic, every so often we have major changes. They don't happen a lot that they just all of a sudden Plates all have to have to have to adjust to a new way of, of spreading. Like you may spreading rates change, subduction changes, spreading directions change. You start with new subduction zones. It's just that the plate tectonic mosaic becomes not an effective anymore for getting out the heat. So it's got to readjust the whole plate tectonic mosaic. And that's what these tectonic episodes are. When the plate tectonic mosaic is readjusting itself to be a more effective way of getting out the, getting out the, getting out the heat. And so, and this is established. These things happen and they happen at the same time of these boundaries. So to me, we have both the opposite of these boundaries, and we have a theoretical mechanism of how they can happen. One of the things that you talked about as well was in the Spur Deep Basin, there were some characteristics in the rock record that you saw that supported this tectonic theory. What were these features that you identified? Well, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm very glad you asked that because this is important. Okay, how did I know these, these, these big onconformities I had in my basin? They're tectonic and not eustatic. Fair, fair enough. That's a very, that's the question you have to ask. Mm -hmm. How do you recognize tectonics as the cause of a boundary? Well, the first one was there was a big angularity at, you know, under the uniformity, you know, that there was, say, 
10 degrees or more of angularity of, of the strata being truncated below. Well, you can't do that with a eustatic mechanism. You have to have uplift, tilting, and erosion. That is the only way to create that kind of angularity. So that was number one. Number two was often across these boundaries, the subsidence rate had a major change that maybe be that under the boundary, the, there was a subsiding at a high rate. Then all of a sudden you had this boundary. Then above that boundary, the rocks were subsiding at a much, a much, much, a much, a much uh, lower rate. Well, again, that's a major tectonic change across that boundary. You don't explain that by a static mechanism of the sea level going up and down. And a third one was there was often a major change in the depositional environment. I mean, just look at, say, you have the Pallarsid limestone. You see that huge, huge, big limestone. And then all of a sudden you get the boundary, you have the unconformity on top of it, and you have the eggshell on it, this black shell. Well, you know that does that that just didn't happen at a eustatic event that all of a sudden things totally changed. That and, and across all of my boundaries, there were these major changes in the depositional environment. It totally changed. The whole whole new world was just all, all of a sudden appeared. Once again, that's not a eustatic kind of a thing. That's a tectonic thing. So it was those kind of criteria that said, well, I have, this is obviously tectonics. One of the points you had as well that was kind of interesting about the tectonics is you looked at it over time periods. So not um, the Mesozoic, Triassic, Jurassic. And you talked about, you know, would it be affected the most because we have a supercontinent of Pangaea? Or did you see this over time where the um, plates are all in different orientations? So what do you, how do you kind of um, put those together, the different plate configurations with the tectonics? Yes, well, as I say, that we can, these boundaries we found, my colleague Benoit Beauchamp found very similar boundaries in the, in the, in the upper Paleozoic. Another colleague found very similar boundaries in the lower Paleozoic of the Arctic. And again, these boundaries are, are being found all over the world. So that we know for the entire Phanerozoic, these boundaries are there without a doubt. And so, and we know that the, there's plates were coming together, opening up, you know, Pangea formed in the, in the late Paleozoic and was maybe in the mid-Triassic was at its, at its major thing. And then from the mid-Jurassic on, it just slowly opened, it cracked apart to form what we have now. So these boundaries are covering the plates have doing many things over half a billion years. So, and we know that that these plate mosaic changes, it's just not, and there are, and it's episodic. That's how the world works. It's punctuated, it's episodic. Things just aren't just a, just a sinusoidal curve of change. They're punctuated booms. And that's, I mean, even in our own lives, we can say that's how life goes by. We have long periods of boredom, short periods of uh, excitement. 
<laughs> exactly. And I like how you're talking there about how all the world is connected. And, you know, you've yeah. seen these boundaries yeah. and basins like North America, Europe and Asia, Asia, and it was the same boundary. And you had a suggestion to kind of concentrate the exploration around these boundaries. Um, so I know this paper is from 2006. Have you noticed since then if exploration has targeted the boundaries? I have to admit, I don't know. But I sort of hope people realize that, you know, these episodes of tectonic create wonderful potential petroleum traps and petroleum migration. That things are really changing at them. And that's when traps get formed. You get nice truncated sandstones or suddenly a sandstone is transgressed. So you get a nice pinch out of the, of the sand basin where it is tilted in the right way. So these boundaries do have potential for to be really great exploration targets around them. Like in the in the, in the Montany, they talk, you know, okay, that a lot of there's three nice big boundaries that uh, that in the Montany, and you know, which we talked about. I talked about these boundaries thirty years ago that they were there. And they're not only in the money, they're around the whole world, these same boundaries. And that's where they're getting their major finds are connected to these boundaries in the money. So that's just one example of, and I'm sure if you went to a new basin you would, and you were drilling the same age, I would say, okay, concentrate your exploration concepts around these tectonic events and you'll, you'll get good You'll get good. I think you have potential for some great things. It's an interesting way of looking at it. You know, if you found a good um, boundary within the Montney, you know, look for it at the same time, same age and other other basins. I think it's a genius way yeah. to find yeah. new yeah. potential. And they are there. I mean, that's the amazing thing. I mean, and I always like to say that in this 1977 Exxon publication, they had these boundaries in the mainly in the Mesozoic, and they were the big boundaries, and they're the ones they were basing their eustatic model on. Ironically, these big boundaries are all the tectonic ones, and they are around in different basins as they found the Exxon found, but they're tectonic. So actually, Exxon had actually found the, this episodic tectonic boundaries, but they hadn't hadn't realized it at the time. So I think that's kind of ironic but that's the way science progresses exactly speaking of science progressing what questions do you think are still unanswered in the study of sequence stratigraphy well sequence stratigraphy i think we've got the methodology down pretty well now so we've got the surfaces well defined and we don't i think we got to keep this idea of the global tectonics going to just to test it out to see, well, maybe the boundary ages can change slightly. They might migrate. The tectonics might migrate. And they may also, depending on how the plate mosaic changes, in some areas they're going to be big, in some areas going to be small. So I would love to see studies of, say, one or two boundaries around the world. Say, go to basins in go to basins around the world, maybe 20, 30 different basins and say, okay, we're going to study this boundary and this boundary and 
get the age, get the how big it is. Was it what happened in the tectonics? Was there folding? Was there just uplift? Was there this? Was there that? Study a boundary or two around the world. And I think that might give us a whole new world of understanding of how the world works, how the whole plate tectonic world works. So I try and get, but that's not a very easy study. Only a, maybe a big oil company could have the money and time to do that. I don't know. But yeah. uh, maybe some professor might do this. I mean, a fine example is the huge unconformity at the Permian-Triassic boundary. I mean, that's just there. I mean, and it's around the world. There's no doubt it's around the world because you can find it in bases. Everybody talks about the PT boundary. It's there. It's It's big. It's huge, and it's in basins around the world, and it's obviously tectonic. In the spirit of basin, we have folding at that boundary, just below that boundary. So there's no doubt it's a, it's one of these tectonic boundaries that's found around the world. So, But it would be wonderful that if you did the same kind of study we've done in the spirit of basin, and we detail, you know, we've done detailed, detailed studies of the boundary and to do that around the world and then find out what that tells us about the world. Yeah, so that's one thing. And then I think the other thing is the exploration. You know, try and see, okay, are there certain boundaries that really have that have been major oil, oil sort of producers, oil-like uh, traps? Or, you know, maybe, maybe there are, I, but stuff like that. I don't know. I like that idea. It's a big, big dream. Look at the entire world, uh, yeah, seeking stratigraphic exactly. study. It sounds that uh, it'd be really neat to see that, actually. I think that's got potential for having another big breakthrough. You know, like plate tectonics was a gigantic breakthrough. Now, it wouldn't be as big as that, but it would be a significant breakthrough in our understanding of the how the world is evolving through time like you know how these tectonic changes happen and how the plate tectonic mosaic changes throughout so i think there's there is there is significant potential for well, sort of a fairly noticeable paradigm shift in how we view the world and how we view the tectonic evolution of the world Exactly. Well, I feel like we could talk about sequence geography for hours and hours. There's been decades of research into it and, you know, worldwide view going forward. So uh, future decades again. So thank you so much, Ashton, for coming on and sharing your thoughts. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. As you know, this is one of my favorite topics that I always like to wax on about. And I I appreciate having the opportunity to do so with you. And I want to tell anybody who hears this podcast that has any questions or thoughts, just send me an email and I'm always glad to discuss and an answer or you know whatever on anything that people want to bring up. Perfect. Sounds good. I will put your email address in the description so people can yeah, go sure. ahead and do that. That'd be fine. No problem. Awesome. Thanks, Ashton. Well, thank you, Maureen. That was been really lots of fun. Stone's Notes is brought to you by Stone Consulting. 
We can be found online at www.stoneconsulting.info or send us an email anytime at stoneconsultingcorp at outlook.com. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Maureen Stonehouse. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.